Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Disc Golf Answer Man. I am Bobby Cool, Daddy Slick Breezy. And on this episode, we have Eric Oakley and James Proctor, and they catch us up on the Open at Austin, the tournament they just played last weekend. And we talk a little bit about the tournament they're getting ready to play, the Texas State Championships. We also answer some of your questions you've sent in, and we talk a little bit about course management. So let's get to the show. Where are you guys? Where are you guys currently at right now? Houston. And you're practicing for the Texas States. Texas States. Uh, course. First, what course Gold. is that playing at? I don't remember. What's up? What, what course is that being played on? I you can't froze. remember. Are you dead? Bobby, please don't I'm die. <laughs> okay. Now. Now you're back. Am I back? You're back. Okay. What uh, What uh, course is that being played on? Brock Gold. Uh, let me think. Actually, the actual name of the park. I looked it up a second ago. Is it a golf course? I think so. Or was at one point. Brock Park Disc Golf Course. Have you guys played that before? I guess you haven't played that before. No, it's brand new. First time. Have you? It has two courses on it: the men and women. I think an MP40 maybe even has a the MP the women in MP40 or FPO and MP40, if you will is playing a different course that is on the same property. And then we're playing, I guess, what they're considering Brock Gold as the, um, for the MPO course. And it's, it's good. I enjoyed it. We got we practice it today. It was windy. I thought it's big. You walk a lot. Yeah. Not almost 10,000 feet. I think course bar is 64. Wow. 64, so it's only, but it's, par fours are all attainable. You don't ever feel out of it. The par five that is on the course feels pretty easy. The par threes are all very tricky. They're like really specific lines. Some of them have really low ceiling, um, but you're having to carry quite a, quite a long way. So should be fun. Should be really fun. Now this is is this a I'm not finding it on here. Is it a silver series or it is a silver series. Oh, okay. Silver series and a USDGC qualifier. So explain to people our listeners, just in case they're not aware, what is it? What's a series series as opposed to elite series that's happening right now? So silver series is it's a subsection of tournaments that uh, give fifty percent tour points, but I think three events only you only can get three uh points from them at the end of the season so say you had 10 silver series only three of them would count at 50 percent points so the most points you can get from a silver series is a, is 50 points uh and that's if you win one which is pretty solid it's good points um definitely something uh uh you're trying to to aim for but it if you're serious about the pro tour standings you've got to play them even though the part of the situation was to not have them count as much or to not be that big of a deal but it's like it's it's interesting because it like legitimately if you decided to play only the elite series 
you could find yourself out of position in a lot of ways in the point standings because you don't play the Silver Series and you miss out on those potential points. So they become must plays at that point. Just, so you would have you have to play every silver series, or you just need to like sprinkle in a if few. If you play well, the three that you play, you're fine. Oh, okay. Uh, but you, you know, you want to bank like you know the guys who are trying to qualify for the points at the end of the year. You want to bank at least like 30, 20, 30 points for each one for them to matter. Yeah. So gotcha. if you have a bad one, you only get five or ten points. Then you're going to need to play another one. Yeah. So that's that. That is the. The, the the conversation that has been happening amongst the pro tour plus the the players is like yeah you don't have to play all of them but in a realistic world you probably should as a if you're if you're a betting man or woman or you make those decisions to give yourself better odds and bet, the more events you play the better odds you have so why wouldn't you do that it's like yes by your logic, all I need to do is play three Silver Series and then seven or eight Elite Series or whatever the number is. That's all I need to play. Gotcha. But why wouldn't I play more when I can make more money, get more points, cross off a couple bad events, whatever, like that case yeah. it comes into. Because not everybody, like even the top players don't play their best at every single event. Um, yeah. You know, so that's it's just important to do so. That's quite a grind, though. Adding it seems like it does it add more events to what you're used to, or yeah, it, yeah, it it, yeah. Limits the <laughs> yeah, it does for sure. And on the contrary, you know, now we have two elite plus, and then I believe two or three playoff events that are all worth 150 percent, yeah, percent instead oh, wow. of 100. So, you know, if you if you those are all kind of later in the year. Uh, I think Portland Open and Ledgestone are the two. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really important to get into those playoff so, events. So if that's you can why. play well at Elite Plus, that that also helps bank points. Mm-hmm. And then you know, you could drop out of some later ser- Silver Series and if you get finished high there. Two of three majors, I think, is what it is. If you play uh, Worlds, Champions Cup, European Open, yeah, you get two out of three of those as well. USDGC doesn't count since it's too close to it. With the change to the European Open qualifying, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it goes. So we'll see. Interesting. All right, well, let's talk about the uh, event that just happened this past weekend, the uh, Open at Austin. Um, yeah, let's talk about James being an absolute <laughs> stud. I know. Congrats on your tie for third place at James Proctor. That How did that feel? It felt great. Um, you know... It, the first round kind of felt like a wash because it was the conditions were rough. It was super windy, and everyone was still kind of getting used to the course. Um, and it just scored so different the next two days. You saw the scores were a lot lower, and uh, you know i I didn't feel like I was playing well enough to be near the top, but I just was super efficient at limiting my mistakes. I only had two bogeys the whole tournament. So, um, you played bogey free the first day. Yeah, at 15 pars and three birdies the first day. Wow. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it, it felt good. Like, I, I wasn't checking scores at all. Um, I I was throwing the disc really well. Um, but, you know, I had no, the conditions were so perfect and there was so many guys. I was in, I don't know, 12th place going into that round. So, I, you know, I was just trying to 
fight for the top 10 and try to get top 10. And uh, it wasn't until after my tee shot on 18 that I kind of knew where I was at and I needed to go for the green um, to try to get a podium. And so, you know, it was one of those, it, it didn't feel like I was doing anything special. It, it didn't feel like something that wasn't going to be repeatable for me. It just, I kept it clean. Uh, and it's going to be my focus going forward. I saw the value of not bogeying and staying in bounds. My two bogeys in the tournament were both out of bound strokes. One was not even a bad shot. I liked it. I went big hyzer on 14, I down at 15. And it landed safe and then skipped in the OB long. And then I had a 40 footer that I didn't connect with. So, you know, yeah, it, I mean, it was fun. I'm super, I'm super happy with how the year started. And, um, you know, had I connected on a couple more circle two putts, uh, that could have been could have been me holding that trophy. So I'm, I'm motivated to wearing that hat. Wearing that hat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great change, um, by the way. It was, it was pretty um, you uh, you mentioned a couple of things that I want to dig deeper into because I thought it was interesting. You said that you it didn't feel like you did anything remarkable, like you didn't really mess up a lot. You didn't really do anything amazing. You just kind of kept it even keel. Is that tip? Is that typically how you approach uh, the big tournaments? It's typically how I approach them, but I don't always execute that. And mm -hmm. I the whole trying to learn that course was interesting. Um, how, how so? Especially in the wind, some of the lines didn't feel attackable mm -hmm. with the wind direction. And so I had no confidence in that course. As the tournament went on and the conditions got better, you know, I was trying different lines or I was able to throw a disc that I wasn't able to throw in practice. And, and so I tried to just keep every shot simple, um, you know, like not necessarily trying to park the hole, just throw it close, throw it 40 feet, throw it to the safe side. Um, I was really like, Eric and I spent that whole week thinking, how are we going to shoot well here? And so I kind of went hole by hole, like hole one, I did not try to birdie at all. I was totally playing safe. I parted every round and I was fine with that. Um, and so it was unique for me, one, because we were learning a new course. And two, because like the conditions were changing and my approach kind of changed, but for the most part, I was just happy, you know, being in circle two, giving yeah. myself a look. Um, and yeah, it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Val. Well, Val Jenkins at the time of Val Doss, but a lot of times her play was, she would say that is she would just try to play even disc golf and a yeah. lot of times it got her to the top. In fact, <clears throat> if I remember, that's how she kind of played pro worlds when she won it in Emporia. Yeah. She mentioned that she she was just kind of like, I was just playing good, good, good golf, just playing it safe, getting my pars and moving on and ended up, you know, helping her win the championship. So it's interesting that you bring that up, that that's kind of going to be your approach moving forward is that you're not going to go always for the big shots. You're just going to play nice and just be happy with those pars. I think it worked on that course because no one played great in the first round. Um, you know, if I try to do that at a course like, I don't know, Jonesboro, I'm going to get smoked because people are going to shoot 10, 11, 12 down there every round. Yeah, and you're and you're playing conservative and shooting six. Does like, yeah, you're like set back. You kind of need to put the pedal to the metal there. But yeah. It's like, at a course that nobody knows. That was a unique situation, I feel yeah. like. And I bet it, I, I benefited from 
a solid first round and then yeah my gameplay the rest of the tournament but you know i, I want to be i don't necessarily want to be safe like play it safe or be happy with par i just whatever i can do to eliminate the bogeys but still be aggressive enough to get birdies mm-hmm. you know gotta have that killer instinct because like if you look at james's stats he was first in circle two in regulation so he's giving himself so many looks and that's in that conservative mindset too. Yeah. Like, so that's not him playing full metal. So it's like a full pedal to the metal. So when, when you just start to like push it, you might have be closer in green and regulation a little bit more, but then also it's like playing smart and trusting the, the disc that he's throwing. But I mean, I got to catch a couple portions of his round and it just, the dude was just confident. And once he gets, dialed in a little bit from circle two, if he would have made, like you, like you said, three or four, five circle two putts, Tim, him wearing the hat, you know, but it's, it, you know, that's all, you know, hearsay and hindsight is 2020. So. If you've been looking to try some class discs or just want to stock up on some of your favorite class discs, make sure you grab a great deal out at classdiscfactory.com. That's where they're sending me misprints and I'm listing them on that website so that you can grab some great deals on some misprints from the Wild Honey, Mango, Berry, and I just listed some Softy Mint, Softy Butter, and Softy Popcorn. They are so good. People are really loving the feel of the Softy Plastic. So head on out to classdiscfactory.com and grab some great deals on some Clash Disc misprints. You you and I have been talking uh, since I traveled with you a little bit for the first couple of events, and uh, your kind of thing is you're going to give Disc Golf a try. You're going to see how this does and see how how well you do and... Um, so far, you're doing really well, you know, appearing at the t- on top of lead cards, chase cards and moving your way up to, you know, uh, top three finishes. How does that does that put more pressure on you, less pressure on you? How, where does that put your mental state as far as the season starting off really well? Um, I, I don't I don't think it has anything to do with with pressure, although I guess if I was off to a bad start, I would be feeling a lot of pressure to play well. So maybe it has taken some off. Um, for me, it's not as much about the golf. It's more about the lifestyle of living on the road. Uh, you know, I have a home, I have a fiance and a dog and a, and a job that I really enjoyed back there. And so it's a huge, it's been a huge lifestyle adjustment for me. Um, you know, we're, this is the third week of a, of a, of the Texas swing of a three week span. You know, I'm, I'm excited to go home next week and, you know, I'm fatigued. I went from playing, you know, maybe 10 rounds in all of December, January, and February to now playing 10 rounds in the last two weeks. So I'm feeling the effects a little bit. Um, but, it, you know, as far as the disc golf goes, I love the game. I love playing it. I love competing. Um, I'm not feeling a ton of pressure there. Like, I'm, I put pressure on myself to play well and perform well. And But I think for me, like, the – if I do decide to step down from disc golf in, in two years, I don't think it will be from a performance standpoint. I think it'll be from a, you know, I want to start a family standpoint and you know, be home and do disc golf is always still going to be there though. That's yeah. the cool part is like look at Nate Sexton. Yeah. What he's been able to do and get out there and travel to the events that he wants to go to. And then, but also live, you know, with Bree mm-hmm. and Coraline and, and just, and, that so that's like I think it's we're not far off from that. Yeah. No, yeah. totally. 
So, totally. And so, you know, you said you, it's been some big adjustments. What are some of the bigger adjustments you've made and what are some things that you've been able to lean on Eric Oakley for? Because since he's, you know, a seasoned, <laughs> you know a seasoned uh, disc golf traveler, um, what are some of the things that what are the biggest adjustments and what have you leaned on Eric for? I think, you know, I, I'd always in the past, the most I'd done on the road was a couple weeks. Um, so I really wanted to like continue because I knew that, you know, disc golf hard on the body and playing it six, seven days a week, you need balance. I need time away from the course. So I knew like immediately the van life was not for me. I, you know, I can't hang out at the course all day, all week. I have so much respect for everyone who does. That's just not me. Um, so, you know, I think one thing Eric and I, we kind of talked about this before we started was, you know, we need our time in the hotel. We need a comfortable space to live. So we're not staying at, you know, the Red Roof Inn or whatever. We're, you know, we, we have fitness centers. We have the free breakfast. I love a nice shower, air conditioning, TV, Wi-Fi, all that. So just kind of make spending the extra 20, 30 bucks a night to have a comfortable space to be in when you're off the course. Um, and then, you know, Eric has since the off season has developed a, a really nice workout routine. So we've been um, kind of doing that together and we plan to do after this. So yeah, we're going to hit the gym right after this yeah. and, you know, stretch and stay healthy and keep the body feeling good. And um, yeah, I think, you know, another thing too, that's nice is, you know, Eric has his relationship with Tina and they've, Eric's been doing this for a couple of years. So they've kind of established how to make that work. And I've, taking notes from him and like dedicated time to FaceTime my fiance, Emily and, and call her in the morning and, um, you know, just make sure that, you know, she knows I'm thinking about her and, and we are able to keep our communication and, and everything on that front as well. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm still learning and, and taking little mental notes and, and adjusting and, all that good stuff. But, uh, so far it's been great. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's get back to the, uh, to the event as a whole. What are some of the highlights of, uh, cause I've never been to any of these courses. So what are some of the highlights for the open in Austin? As far as the event that they have, I don't know if they put on like a, a big uh, fly mart or do they even call it a fly mart anymore? Fly mart's just a fly mart player. Oh, okay. Party. Yeah. Did they have a big old player party and all that? Yeah, uh, things that went well about Austin. Fly Mart was great, good atmosphere, a little dark, but then, you know, Lone, St Lone Star just did a great job. Brian Shintaku was there helping him see the events and everything. So there, that was done well. I don't think that there is much about the event, the staff, the volunteers, all that stuff. Like, that was all top-notch. The venue itself was decent. And okay, and like, but I don't, I don't think that the course we played ended up being the best product the Pro Tour could have put out uh, for us. Um, it didn't look, it wasn't fun to play. It wasn't that I don't think it was talked about as being that great to watch either from in person and or on coverage. So that's just a lot of stuff. But from my uh, discussions and everything, that there's they're working on it. That's 
that's great. And that's all you can ask for. Yeah. And I've seen some of the talks on social media and some of the comments are that uh, the majority of players seem to be not very well, not, not pleased with the course and the layout. We're good. good. Um, We could do, we, there was so much better that could have been done, but now we're on a course for the next tournament and it's a new, newer course that feels a little bit more fun and might be a little bit more enjoyable and could still have great, um, uh, close scoring and stuff like that. Because I do think that one thing that we, you know, don't want to miss out on is I always look at Utah worlds as, as this event that had controversy with the driving range, the course wasn't great. And why are we here? There's a lot of stuff that happened surrounding that. And as the play goes, it was not very well liked. The courses, both courses were not great. Now, tell, tell us a little bit more about that because you said it wasn't very fun to play. It's not well liked. Well, I mean, I don't always like my job. Some parts of my job aren't always fun. And then this is your job. But so kind of break us down, break down for us what you mean by it wasn't liked by the players. The It, it comes down to when you're playing a course, the shot shapes and and decision-making that is asked of you, you want it to be something that feels attainable. You want it to be something that you can walk up and understand what you should be doing. And um, when those decisions are sometimes made for you, or if you're finding ways to cheese holes by playing them, look at hole 17 at, uh, at this past weekend at, at the open um, players were jump putting off the tee and then throwing big hyzers over everything over the OB and crashing inbounds. I watched a player put it off the tee, throw a thumber, Jake Wolf, uh, incredible thumber thrower was, he did it in round two and got the birdie and then had an unfortunate where his, you know, his thumber didn't crash the trees and pushed out the back and took a bogey the next round. But it's when players are trying to find ways to do that to your holes and not play your intended fairway. I think you've, You've met, you've made a mistake where when we were at Utah, it looked like one of the courses, it was just, Hey, we already had an established course and these are the lines, but we need to make it harder for the MPO division and for a major to come here. So they just kind of like tee pad backwards and they just pushed it back and didn't really think about what the line was. The course wasn't designed off of that. So that takes away from the fun when the shots don't feel attainable to landing into a small, tiny landing zone in the woods. And you have to throw a 450 foot flex shot through that because, and through a tight gap and with a bunch of low hanging stuff to, that starts to take away from the enjoyment factor of the game. And now James said it really, really well early on when we were practicing for the open. It's not our job to like the course. It is our job to figure out how it can go and play it well, which outside of my first round, I did so, he did so in all three rounds, you know, so it's just like we found ways um, and that's that's just, uh, that's kind of how it goes. So uh, again, I look at Utah Worlds as one of those examples of the tournament wasn't well liked by the players, but it's still one of the best sporting events in history. And that's the that's what more people remember about Utah Worlds is the shot. You know, and, and how it all finished up. Not and how it finished up in FPO as well. Katrina and Paige's battle was insane. So it was great on both ends. So we 
it, if we continue to have these tight finishes with chase card winners and stuff like that, it's going to be very cool to see. And um, I do think, uh, excuse me, in a lot of ways, um, I do think that this upcoming course will do that. And I think it is, it is good to have these, but I, you know, why can't we have fun on the courses? Why can't the courses be difficult and fun? Northwood Black, this the second iteration we had, over, outrageously difficult, but fun. When you throw the shots and and execute, you feel good. You feel really good. And uh, I just don't think that Harvey Panic did that. It was it was interesting. A lot of the holes. Uh, just minor tweaks, you know, like mm -hmm. a good tee pad was here and, and they had it like pushed back a little bit too far into the right because they're trying to make like a really cool shot. But, you know, a lot of them were like, at least for the, for the players, you can't even see where your disc is going. You can't see the basket. A lot of the baskets were around a corner. There's a lot of danger by the basket. And, you know, it, it played decent with no wind. Mm -hmm. But when you have a 20 mile an hour headwind, it's like there's, it's impossible. Yeah. And you get a bunch of guys thrown at 100 feet away and then jump putting, and it's like this is incredibly boring to watch. Mm -hmm. um, and there was just certain things that we would see, like, you know, this would have, this would flow really nice. And instead, we're, you know, walking over here and then throwing back here. And it's like these two holes are okay, but this would have been sweet if it was one or this would, or like, you know, you have a big landing zone that's, or you have a big, OB that's your landing zone and it's like you know it just the property's cool it felt like one of those that might have been I don't know if it was rushed or you know they didn't like if they played a B tier on it they might have learned some stuff like hey we should adjust this or move this or tweak this or the flow was good though there was no backups really yeah so I watched I watched the uh, big Beth's uh post round interview and when they asked him because they had shown his back nine was uh, all birdies until the last to a whole 17 and 18. Mm -hmm. and then when he had, they were at he was asked about that he just basically was like these are terrible holes um yeah and I, I think you mentioned 17 eric in your in your talks just a few seconds ago but so tell me what uh, you mentioned 17 but what, what, what was it about 18 that made mcbath and other players not not agree with the way the hole was set up it, the close. tee shot was whatever. kind of just you're thrown into an open field. Like there was out of bounds you couldn't see and there was a green long. It just, it didn't feel like a great finishing hole to let people view. It was kind of tucked in in the woods. There was a path running up the middle of the fairway. Mm -hmm. um, it felt forced and it felt like they got pinched by the rest of the course. And they thought, you know, here's here's where 18 has to go. It it reminds me of USDGC's 18 in that way of they were trying to make it like, oh, it's a big a kind of aggressive tee shot to a really tight guarded green that is tough to access. But it wasn't, it, it's like the part about uh, Winthrop is it's a beautiful shot, both tee shot and around the big tree and down, skipping down the wood chips, you know, sloped everything. It has so much more going for it where we were in a subsection of the golf course or near a path with a kind of muddy creek to the right. It wasn't even a creek. It was just like a stream that was to the right where the OB was on the right with the path and everything. So it's just like, 
I understand the concept, but again, I agree. Like it was, it was also tricky because there was nowhere to lay up. Mm -hmm. If you were a little bit out of position, the fairway was like 10 feet wide for like a hundred feet where you would want to. So if you had to lay up, you're totally up. You would jump foot, jump foot 80 feet and then still be left with a, like a tricky 275, 300 foot shot. So it was kind of, you know, it was, it worked well, like if you needed to be aggressive, you had to execute a high level shot. Yeah. But I just, it, you know, it wasn't, it didn't feel like they planned, like they had 18 in mind and they filled in the rest of the course. Sure. Felt like they went in order and then they were left with, I guess we'll put whole 18 right here. It was a, again, I think what it comes down to with a lot of that is that the whole turn of the course itself was just like, okay, fine. This is what we have to play. But nobody nobody ever felt really good about it. Like, you do want people to walk away from a course and be like, wow, that course is impressive. That was I enjoyed that. I felt challenged. I felt a lot of that stuff. And in some ways, like 18, 17 and 18 just felt like they were trying to get you. 14 was another one. It was a little short chip shot that's so simple, but it's basket elevated with a slope to OB to the left side of it. And it's just like, all you're trying to do is bait me into having a bad roll away. Somebody could hit legitimately right next to the basket, get an, hit a weird undulation on the ground, get a bad roll, and then just find the slope and then run out of bounds. And it's just like, that's a gotcha hole. That doesn't, that doesn't, that feels like it's taking away from me. And there were other places on the course where OB was very close to a lot of baskets. And there were plenty of moments where they could have left that rough that they made OB. They should have just left it as artificial OB where you're in the rough. Good luck. Play from there. And more often than not, we were taking a stroke and coming out where, I mean, just to might as well ramped off a basket and took a double bogey. And I ramped off the basket and landed 20 feet behind the basket and was in out of bounds. And that's how I take a double bogey. And it was just like, that sucks. Like I would felt that felt completely out of my control. And I like, I would have had a still taken a bogey because I'm, you know, had a other Brad breaks before that, but that's fine. It just felt like you're taking a stroke from me for something that I could not control. There was enough danger already around most baskets, whether they were elevated or, you know, there was a bunker or sloped or there was something. a fart path. And then they just like every, a lot of them had natural OB where it's like you're now you're taking away the sweet 35 footer yeah, or, you know, the putt from the knee, like all these highlight putts that people make, no one gets to do those anymore. Cause you're just taking it from the open and taking your meter and knocking down a 20 footer. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like it took away from like a really exciting aspect of the game. Scrambling is important. It should be a skill that's tested. It'll be interesting to see if the tournament directors and the tournament itself uh, make some major changes for next year. Uh, if it, if it the is staff and everybody did fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the disc golf pro tour is trying and I appreciate that. And I've had conversations with Jeff spring. They are trying and they, there are plenty of things about this past event that they didn't like, but they're in a, it's in a mode where it can get better. It's not like they've hit a ceiling. And it's like, sorry guys, this is what it is. They didn't you know. It's like, it can and likely will get better. So that is huge to hear. So uh, despite all the feelings that we have, 
there's a really good chance that the open at Austin, whether it's at Harvey Pennock or not, will get better. And that is, that is something that we should be like, I think that's probably better where the conversation goes of we're going to be good. Things are going to get taken care of. That's what the approach we're trying to do. Were you guys around when the uh, camera guy got hit on the head? James was. I was putting 40 feet from it. What was, tell us, like, being there, what was that all like? Um, I I was very worried for him. I was also very worried for Eagle. Um, Eagle ran up to see, you know, what condition he was in, and it looked pretty bad. There was a lot of blood, so Eagle was pretty concerned, um, as anyone probably would be if they threw the shot. So, um, you know, I w- once I once I saw the cameraman, and you know, Rebecca Duffy was there, um, and he was talking and breathing and responding and all of that was fine. I kind of knew that he was going to be okay. So then I just, you know, I was trying, I was, and Ratana was there too. And obviously she's, she's a lot closer with Eagle than I am, but I just felt for Eagle. I wanted to make sure that he was, you know, going to be in a position where he could keep playing the rest of the round in a good mental state. Um, Everyone responded super quick. They got the golf cart out there. Uh, You know, I I think it was handled as well as it could have been. Obviously, it was super unfortunate. Um, you know, we there was we were the cart ahead, putting on the next hole, which you know was only sixty feet away. Um, but you know, we had stopped for at least fifteen minutes, kind of just making sure everything was okay and not to be you know inconsiderate. Or um, did you hear, did you did you know what happened right as it happened, or was it one of those things you just saw a commotion and went over to see what had happened? Um, we thought. At first, we thought someone almost threw it in for Eagle because they were standing short of the gap and and we heard a lot of, we heard like some stuff and we looked and then I saw Eagle running and I was like, oh, I wonder if he thought it went in or something and we didn't know. And then I saw, I think Dave, Dave, I think it was his name. I saw Dave kind of come out from the basket into the open where we were holding his head and I could see blood. And then I, you know, obviously knew right then and there. so yeah, it was. It, we didn't know what happened in the exact moment, but it became apparent very, very quick yeah. that he got hit in the head. I definitely feel for the guy. Uh, I don't know if Eric remembers, but when I was in Florida traveling with Tyler Searle, I got hit in the head. Um, were you there at that event, Eric? I can't remember. I was. Yeah, you were. Erica, you, Tina, and I can't remember who else was there. But yeah, I was. Uh, I. It wasn't a. He, what did it eagle through? He threw a thummer or a. That was a grenade. grenade. Yeah. A grenade. Um, but it was a drive, and it it was a drive, and it smacked me right right in the head, and hit. I mean, obviously, it doesn't feel very good, but I remember people asking me questions, making sure that I, you know, hadn't suffered from some sort of concussion or something like that. So, but I've seen yeah. pictures online where uh, people were showing where he's got some staples or stitches. So, and apparently, he's he's doing okay. So, um, yeah, uh, it's a tough one. yeah, it's a tough one. There's a uh, there's like. That's something that could be something that is added that, hey, all catch cam or camera people, they have to wear these hats that have padding. And like, uh, and like I, I don't see that as like this bad thing. Like, hey, players are going to throw these shots. More communication would have been great. Like, hey, players going over the top. But at the same time, like sometimes relaying information, even with walkie talkies and headsets, like it still, there's still a processing time. And 
they, they can communicate enough. And I think that's just one of those moments that this is just a very small oversight and in, in how it happened. It's just I one mean, of those things. Okay. You just, it's just, it's yeah. It, it's, but why not, why not take preventative no, measures yeah. to never let that happen? Oh yeah. Like, yeah. It's definitely yeah. now it's like, what do we do now? And so do we, do yes, we provide yeah. some sort of, even if he had a little more, it didn't even have to be like huge padding or anything, just something. So it, you yeah. know, if he hits his head and, you know, it doesn't cut the skin or something like that. So. Totally. It was, and this was a, you know, the whole type, was a special circumstance because you know he's dealing with a, a wooded gap that people are going up the middle but you know the shot to eagle's credit and a lot of other guys did it was going over the top with a spike kaiser yeah. so he's standing in the woods he has no way to know he can't track the disc at all yeah until it's on top of him like you know 90 percent of the holes he's watching the whole flight if it's coming at him he's getting out of the way yeah but this was just that spe- special circumstance where even if he knew a grenade was coming and he's looking up, it would have got him right in the nose. Like he, he would have had no way of seeing this disc until it was already on top of him. Yeah. Crazy stuff. All right. We do have one question from our Google form. Uh, if you guys are ready to answer some questions to go over some tech t- techniques and tips to help our disc golf listeners. This one's from Taylor. He says, should disc golf pro tour events have competitor discs weighed before each tournament to ensure no one is throwing overweight discs. I know some of the MPO were upset about a pro plant throwing a 180 gram halo wraith. So is it time for the disc pro tour slash PDGA to hold the players accountable that their discs are within the PDGA compliance? Now you guys have a, uh, a, a secret, I don't wanna say secret, but a private Facebook group where you as players can talk about things like this uh, as far as Disc Golf Pro Tour. Has this ever come up? Is like, is this a thing that maybe might be coming in the horizon? I've never heard about it coming up. Um, You know, it's hard to regulate discs just because they come in and out of our bags so often and a lot of them look identical. I could see, I could see it being you check your bag and if you're adding anything between rounds, because like technically by the rules, if I stay within my time, I can run to my van, grab a new disc and put it in my bag. Mm-hmm. But that that's just like a weird circumstance. That's sidetrack. If you showed up to each event and like, all right, cool. Do you have any new discs? Like I register my discs at the very first event. Boom. They're marked with something that the PD, the pro tour does ban. And now all of those discs have been weighed, tested and gone. Great. Now, like, hey, do you have any new discs you need to check? Before each round you play, you go and they weigh those, put a little stamp on them. So all your discs have that same stamp. They do that. They did this. They did that at the, the Japan Open, from what I understand. So you'd find discs that were approved for the Japan Open had to be weighed because it was a special circumstance that they had there. That's a very simple thing to add, but it's not something that we're actually talking about. If continue your thought, because I want to, I want to wrap up with with what I have to say. It's like. Like, I feel like nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it. I don't know that it's a huge, you know, how many discs out there are overweight? Who knows? Like, I don't weigh my discs anyway. I just, you know, I see 175 on the bottom and it feels good. Let's go. So I don't know, you know, how important it actually is if companies are making a bunch of 180 discs. Um, have no idea i mean i i know from experience that those things can happen where a disc is over the weight standards Mm -hmm. um but 
they don't try to sell them. So somehow this person got a hold of a 180 gram halo. And how much does it, maybe I'm ignorant to it, how much does, would a 180 uh, disc, how much of an advantage would that give play, a player? I mean, outside of it being technically illegal to throw since the rape is not approved to 180, that's the only part that's like, that's the only part that is like, okay, you can't do that. But at the same time, I don't think that that five grams is going to be like, you know what? They just, they have the best advantage in the world. They are so, they're going to be so good. They're going to be able to slay every single shot. Yeah. And at, at, at the end of the day, if they willingly know that they are using an illegal disc, this is something that I picked up from uh, a Texas golfer, Tetsien, um, where he said, if somebody wants to cheat, do it. If they can live with it, fine. But but here's the at the end of the day, what's going to come back to them is there's no way that good things continue to follow them. There's no way that they can continue to believe that being out there and cheating the system is the play or is the right thing. It's like that's why benefit goes to the players because we should be able to trust in each other to do the right thing, to play within the rules and make the right decision. So in my eyes, if somebody is actively going to go out there and cheat, like it's the it, karma is going to come back around, the rules are going to come around and they'll be punished and uh, it'll be a bigger discussion, but just be a good human being. Don't, don't do that stuff. Don't, don't, finagle yourself into a good lie because you think you we went out of bounds up here when really you know it was back there it's like don't be that person or and don't be that person that's throwing illegal yeah, I'm, I'm with you so on like, the fact that like yes there are rules and so we ha- we should to keep things fair and 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 even for everybody you should play by the rules so that we know everybody's playing uh fair uh but i can't i just can't imagine there there's going to be a day when Somebody wins a big, a major, and then someone finds out that they're throwing a heavy disc, and then someone calls them on it, upon it, and then all of a sudden we're reading an Alte world where uh, a, 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 a person that got first place is stripped away, that prize is stripped away because they found out they had heavy discs. I mean, I don't ever see that happening. Yeah. One, how would you find right. out? And two, like, a heavy wraith, if you're using that to your advantage, just get a destroyer. Like, all it's going to do is hold up in the wind better. Yeah. And, like, you know, we just got this sweet box of emperors. And, you know, my black and white one's a little straighter. And my cotton candy one likes the hyzer and fights the wind. So there's so many different, like, runs and variations of different discs that are more stable, that fight the wind better, that, you know, fly differently. You don't you don't need to go buy a 1-8. Like, how would you even buy one? But... You know, there's so many other ways to have a good day. You know, I'm assuming a heavy brave, the one advantage would be it would be stable and hold up in the wind. Yeah, but so do, like, so do bosses and exactly. destroyers like they do. And so do PD2s. And I would, I would like say that. the percentage of people, uh, uh, as far as like the Disc Pro Tour circuit, the percentage of players that are out there throwing overweight discs is so minuscule that it's not even worth implementing anything like that and i would imagine that 99.9 percent of them have no idea yeah. that their disc is overweight don't even know what they're doing yeah if somebody went and weighed my bag and be like hey these three discs are overweight i'd be like would never have known 
then don't approve them. I'll find other discs that I'm not actively checking and be like, oh, this one, 179, totally throwing this one. It's going to be so much better. Like, I'm not actively doing that. Like, that's just like not, I don't think that that's something that people do. And if, again, if somebody's actively doing that, that they think that that's how they're going to start winning, you're crazy. Like, that's not it. Like, you still have to go throw the disc really good. And if the wind is up, doesn't, it, I don't think five extra grams is going to make or break how the shot is going to fly. Because go to Emporia when we had crazy winds at DDO, like didn't matter what disc you were throwing. You could have thrown a, I could have thrown a cinder block in that wind and it would have blown out of bounds. It wouldn't have mattered. So yeah, I, I think that I, I, I do like the question and I do think that is something that the pro tour will eventually move towards of having disc. You have to have your disc checked for gashes and you know different things and it gets a stamp like a, a, a easy ink stamp that is a permanent ink on there and it can't be replicated and you just run them and then again if you need to add this to your bag before you show up for your tea time you have to go by and have those discs stamped like i could see that being the direction um things go for pro tour and pro tour events and and i mean it eliminates that whole system of being people being people right now can bend the rules in their favor because they're like, well, nobody's checking. So it's like, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't All right, so there's a couple of topics no. I wanted us to discuss that I thought our listeners might probably prove, uh, might be helpful for them. Um, and what I'm actually asked to do a little bit with, uh, everybody's take on the open at Austin and that is course management. So whether you, you know, when you come up upon a course and you're not quite thrilled about it, you still have to have course management. You still have to be able to manage the course, know the layout, understand the layout. So what is your, uh, any kind of thought process that you go through James, when you approach a course and you're out there playing, what are some, do you take mental notes? Do you just, or you just play to play it? Or, you know, how, how do you handle course management as far as uh, attacking the course? Um, I mean, first, I know my strengths. I know what shots I'm going to be able to execute over and over and over again. So I'm going to look for that line or that shot shape that I know I can throw. You know, if we get up to a 400 foot hole and it, and it bends to the right, I'm not going to practice, sit there and practice the sidearm if I'm going to throw it back in and throw it. Um, so I think sticking to your strengths, sticking to your kind of capabilities, um, and trying to simplify the holes, especially on the pro tour, we have a lot of holes that have a ton of OB, they have a ton of kind of risk reward. So kind of deciding, you know, hey, it's hole two, I don't need to go for this birdie, I'd be fine at the par. Like I don't, I hate starting my rounds with bogeys. Any bogey in like the first five holes is like super annoying. So I tend to play more conservative on the, on the like the front six, get my round off to a good start, get a couple under, and then kind of, you know, get aggressive if I need to. Um, but for me, I just, you know, I, I stick to my strengths. I, I, I try to, you know, have an approach. Obviously, it changes with wind conditions, weather, how I'm feeling that day. Um, my approach to certain holes will change. But definitely before the tournament starts, I have in mind, you know, what, where my landing zone is on each hole. Sometimes, you know, what disc I throw to get there will change. If there's a big headwind one day, I'll go, you know, destroyer, um, you know, whatever type disc. And then if there's a tailwind, I'll disc down to a, to a fairway, but I pick my landing zones. I decide like, this is my highest percentage shot. Um, you know, and then that's what I'm going to throw to get there. Yeah. No, uh, landing zone. So you're basically saying, okay, 
I want my shot from the tee to land here so that then my approach shot becomes this and then my putt becomes this. And so you've got that, you're, yeah. you're pretty much are trying to uh, plan that all out. So come tournament day, you can execute on that. That's what I think that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, you know, I want to, um, and I, you know, sometimes it's good to, when you play the hole, look at the basket, from the basket back of the tee pad and look at the hole backwards. Because I can tell you like, oh, hey, you know, this gap's really big actually. It might not look like it from the tee pad. But coming into the basket, it's wide open. I just have to cut in front of this tree mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And so you can kind of trust that. Sometimes it's deceptive when you're standing at your lie. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to break right in front of this tree, right behind this tree. I want to be on the left side of the fairway because then I have a better backhand window into the green. Um, things like that that just, you know, this is a high percentage shot. I can manip- I can, you know do this all three rounds of the tournament. Yeah. And from there, I have another high percentage shot. Uh, and and kind of just play play your odds, play your numbers. Well, it's like finding certain spots on courses where you can choose how you throw a shot to give you, to find your best percentage shot of, I want to throw spice sidearm as much as possible. So, what do I what do I do to allow that to be my go-to approach? Oh, on this hole, I really need to get left more. So then I can throw the spike sidearm over this OB and then that distance. So I know that shot, I know the release, I know how to throw it. I will look for that as much as possible when I'm on the course. And then there's gonna be some points where I can't do that. So then I fall back to what else do I want to be throwing? Cool, Pathfinder mid-range. Cool. That's where I want to be. If I can find you know, a straight shot with the Pathfinder, that's great. So it's always like having an idea of your toolbox and then applying that and then obviously trying to lean on your most used tools. And sometimes that means taking your tee shot and disking down or changing like, oh, if I went, I could go really big with this roller. It's like, no, if I just throw a smooth hyzer, I'll have a spice sidearm. That's it. There was a good example of that today. We were playing a par four probably 700 some feet, a whole bunch of trees in the way, OB left and right. And we're going, you know, rip emperors off the tee, trying to bite off all the distance we can. And we noticed, hey, if you pitch a sidearm off the tee to the right side, you can have a hyzer approach. Mm-hmm. Simple so hyzer approach. It, you know, there's certain situations where off the tee pad, it looked like you need a bunch of trees, no far gas, get distance. But yeah. then we realized... Let's play to our strengths. Like we can all throw this 275 foot sidearm to the right edge, and then 450 foot hyzer, like yeah. easy that we've thrown. That we're going to throw a couple times on the course. So it's a shot you're dialed in with. So yeah, finding that I think it's really important in course management. Not only like when you're in wooded courses, there's like certain types of shots of like, okay, cool. The left side rough is better than the right side rough because of you know from the left side rough I can straddle out with a sidearm, or from the right side rough I have to go to a patent pending. So if I, sh- if I can, I probably should try and if I'm missing, I probably want to be left. Obviously in the woods, it's like really just don't miss because it's like, it's the easiest way to play better. But uh, you're, you should always be considering those things and understanding when you go and look at the greens, understanding what sides of the baskets are better as well, because there can be really awkward footing to the left of a basket, but super flat and super smooth footing to the right. So maybe you want to land on the right side, even if it means throwing a, a backhand hyzer in rather than a sidearm or something like that. Yeah. 
like always be thinking and looking at that to play to your strengths because the more we just throw it far than throw it close it's like yeah that's basically what we're trying to do but you can go deeper with that and also you know a lot of our courses with the wind too you know if you're if you are more comfortable in a tailwind then you know throw to the right of the basket mm -hmm. and give yourself that 20 foot tailwind butt yeah um thinking about thinking you know it's it's nice like i'm always in the moment when i'm throwing my shot of you know just execute this shot like i'm not thinking ahead but before i step up to my lie i'm thinking okay you know wind's coming right to left i want a tailwind i'm gonna move my landing zone 20 feet to the right and set myself up for that tailwind putt yeah and then when it's time to execute you execute but love it um, yeah you, you you definitely want to be thinking about kind of what you're setting yourself up for before you throw well thank you guys for taking time out of your week again to be on the disc golf answer man show and i know you guys are going to go do your workout and then i'm sure you're going to get some more practice time in out there in texas to play a tournament this weekend so best of luck to you this weekend and then real quick, tell me the details, because I know I've seen it on social media, of your trip to Sweden. You can be playing an event out there in Sweden. What's going on with that? Uh, yes, the Lunde Park in Open, I think I think I said that right. Um, uh, James and I will both be there. It's the weekend, the same weekend as Beaver State Fling, but we're going to leave right after OTB, head out there. We're going to be running a bunch of events, um, details uh, on the way uh, to to just do some great things. Uh, Michael, who's our contact over there has just is killing it um, uh, with, you know, disc golf in Sweden and helping hype it up. And, you know, just, just to honestly, to have the opportunity to go over and teach and talk and hype up disc golf and get people excited about clash and infinite and thought space and whale sacks and finish line and all that stuff. Like we're just, we're able to take all the things that we're already hyped about and go talk to people who were so hyped about disc golf and just kind of be like, yo, let's go. So I think that, that we're, we have a really cool opportunity to just grow our brands, grow the brands we're supported by and make, make new friends and make new relationships, which is uh, very lucky. So it'll be cool. I mean, your first time to Sweden? My first time to Sweden. I've been to Norway and Finland, but I have not been to Sweden. That'll be great. Cool. All right. Thanks cool. again, guys. I appreciate you. Yeah.